when we were down in Florida this past week, my son, who's a worship leader at um, the River Church in Goodrich, and that church is at least, at least probably three or four times the size of ours. And uh, the Lord has really raised him up, and and I and it's just a blessing. It it gladdens my heart to see his growth in the ministry and in the Lord, as well as you know just the time that he's taken. They're they're down there two weeks, and to see him just having fun with his kids that gladdened my heart too as a dad. Just just gave me the joy. And I seen him. He had uh, uh, his Bible, and he's um, and he was you know up before the others and he's outside on the deck reading his his bible in the morning before and he had along with his bible a book and i picked it up and i started reading the introduction of the first chapter and i said you know what uh chris can i if it's all right with you could i steal this from you this week i'm going to use this in my message on sunday and uh so sure so uh, and i'm going to be speaking to you on this because I just saw this. This guy put this in a way that I've not seen done. It's about the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity is the title that the author Michael Reeves um, and the subtitle and introduction to the Christian faith. But the first chapter or so puts the relationship between God as Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a relational way as I've not seen done before. And when you understand this and uh, the relationship way between father and son, that God is father, that Christ is his son who eternally existed with him, but more so than that, that there was a, a love between the two that existed for eternity past. And it continued on and went through creation and creation was born out of this relationship between a father who isn't just loving but who is love and the son who is the radiance of everything that the father is it was so uh, <clears throat> so interesting a delight a delight see so i'm gonna i'm going to um elaborate on some of that for you this morning just awesome you get um guys you want to the first passage of scripture i'm just going to go ahead and read hebrews chapter one first nine verses in hebrews chapter one in the past god spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Or again, I'll be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The Father and the Son. I'm going to uh, tell you. I'm going to tell you a story um, be, real quick before we get into this word. Back in around 1996, 97, somewhere in there. 
Uh, we lived in uh, Illinois at the time in the city in the town of Aurora. And uh, we had a rainfall of about 24 inches of rain in about 24 hours. And there was a flood. And the streets flooded uh, in front of our house. You could row a boat. They were actually rowing boats down to the Walmart to get their groceries. Actually, you couldn't get your car out in there. There was uh, more than a foot of water in the street. And uh, in the neighborhoods around us, uh, just a half a mile from us, to half a mile to a mile on the other side of Galena Boulevard, the water was so deep. How deep was the water? The water was so deep. <laughs> It filled the entire basements and then three to four feet deep on the first floor. So everything in the basement, finished basements, totally ruined. And then the entire first floor, which included all the kitchens and bathrooms, were trashed. Had to be completely gutted out and entire neighborhoods were like that. Well, at the time I was doing home remodeling, I didn't have to advertise for about nine years. I had work solid for about the next oh, seven years or so, and uh, didn't have to call uh, for anything. It, was, it took that long for the, to recover. And I remember one of the things during this time, the story I want to tell you, share with you, is that um, one of the persons that was affected by the, by, by the flood uh, was uh, the founding pastor of the Warehouse Church, where we were uh, planted at the time. And some of you might remember Randy. We brought him here about five or six years ago, and he shared. Um, their church got flooded, got some flood damage too. And just any amount of uh, water in there, you know, they have to tear out drywall because of mold and stuff, plumbing, electric, all they had to be tore out. And they lived in an older home in the urban area of the city. By the way, just as an aside for you contractors, <clears throat> Our house had about a puddle this side at the bottom that two sheets of uh, bounty picked up, uh, paper towel. Uh, why? Because our house preceded the law that came where you had to have a sump pump crock in a hole in the floor. So the water stayed outside and didn't come up through the sump pump and flood the basement when the power went out. First thing that happens during a storm, power goes out, everything floods. So uh, fortunately, uh, the new law didn't, didn't mess us up. The old grandfather law <laughs> saved us from, from the damage that the new law caused. <laughs> That's just an aside. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you got a sump pump crack, <laughs> well, I won't tell you what to do <laughs> because I might get sued. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Randy's house, uh, I spent probably... Um, a month or two months or something like that, working on their house. He had me come in and uh, I was doing a lot of a residential electric at the time, turning old 30 amp and 60 amp service into a 100 amp service. And, uh, so, and he knew that, he said, would you come and do the electric? They had people, they had all the drywall turn out in all the rooms of the house. It was all gutted and everything. Kitchen was gutted, nothing was in there. So I could just, I came in there and ran electric. They needed to have all the drywall put back in, plastered, taped, and all that, sanded and everything. Uh, and they even moved some walls around, if I remember right. So he did all of that job and all of that, all of that work, you know, and I was probably helping them for a month or two months, I don't remember. And uh, did, did that, and I was doing it uh, as a help and as a ministry to them, uh, besides, besides myself earning a living, because... Um, those of you who are pastors, if you've ever worked in church planting before, you know the average pastor in a church plant doesn't take a dime out of the church until about the fifth or sixth year into the ministry. And then uh, probably another five or six years before he's able to live on it. Uh, you know, when you, you, you commit to a ministry, um, and, and that's what he, Randy, was a, he was a church planting pastor. He, he planted that church in the city of Aurora and has done a great work with that and we heard some of that testimony when they were here sharing it um, so I was doing that for him you know uh, gratuitously just as a ministry back to the Lord and uh, but here's the thing the reason why I'm telling you this story is this about a month or two uh, just a couple of months later two or three months after his house was finally restored and reestablished and everything guess what happened 
FEMA came in. And that's the Federal Emergency Money Program or something. It, it, it's, declared, it's declared a national disaster. And when, it, when, the, when the federal government comes in, declares it a natural disaster, what they did was they bought up a whole bunch of the houses that were destroyed and it had, uh, that they figured were, you know, when you total a car, the cost to rehab it is, is more than it's worth in value. And they did that to, uh, uh, to Randy and Irene's house. They bought the house from them at fair market value and demolished it. And so I saw all the work that I did, I did, and I was only one guy, and there was a lot of other people that did a lot of work and finally finished it, and it finally was livable and looked like a whole lot better than it was before the flood. And they came in, they paid them, they got their, they got their money, and they were able to move somewhere else, and the house was raised to the ground. And I'm like, you know, I learned a lesson from that, that... All that I do every day on a daily basis for my labors and the work that I do, we value ourselves because of what we accomplish, right? The, you turn around and go and walk away, and it's nothing but rubble in a moment. Now think about that. When you put somebody in the ground and their name is on that slab of granite with two dates <laughs> beginning and end and a dash in the middle it doesn't say you know John Doe the best plumber in Detroit <laughs> you know or the greatest musician it doesn't say what he did because those are the things that the guy did and they weren't the things that the guy was what you do and what you are are two completely, entirely different things. And what you do is not going to last forever. In fact, it may not last two months. Right? It looks good now, and you're, I think it's good to take uh, gladness and, and satisfaction in doing a good job. God wants that. You should want to do the best that you can do because you're serving the Lord and not men, ultimately, right? We want to do that to glorify God. But ultimately, if it's to glorify self or men to make ourselves look what I can do, it, that's where you're going to have a problem. Because it won't, not only will what you do not last, but what you are is going to go down with it. It's not going to last either if it's just for self. But if it's to glorify God, it's a different story. You see, God um, has made us human beings, not human doings. Think about that. Now, let's go back to the person of the Father and the Son. Because the Father, God, most religions look at God, and especially the non-Christian religions, the pagan religions, look at all the way back in the context of the first century church. The Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon had all of these gods who were all about what they could do. It's like each one had a superpower. The Fantastic Four. Everyone has a different superpower. And they're elevated because of what that superpower is. And they're fighting and struggling amongst each other about who's the best or more, or more important. And that's the way the Greeks and the Romans looked at the gods. Petty, who needed to be served and recognized and whose power and identity came from those who praised them. And it's what an opposite it is to look at the god of the Bible and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is completely the opposite. In fact, as you look at this and study this, you're going to see that man's idea of God, through all of the, especially through all of the false religions, is very much like the devil himself, who wanted the power and wanted the authority and wanted the notoriety that God had for himself, but without the relationship of those whom he made. And God made man so that with a desire that he wanted to have sons, not subjects, but sons. 
and it poured out of what he already was from eternity past, a father. He was always a father. He wasn't creator. We look at God and so many, even in the church, we, look, we do the same thing. We commit the same error today. We look at God as if he's creator, and we call him almighty God that this is to do this and do that, and, be, and, and, uh, and ruler. When we look at that, we look at that as power and authority, creation, creator, ruler, and dominion. There's power and there's authority. And when we approach God only on that, as, as that, we're completely missing the heart and the soul of who God is. God is love. And God is Father. What he does and what he did for a living was create and rule. That's what he does. But he is a father. He doesn't become a, a, a father at some point in time. He always has been a father because he always has been otherly. He always has loved the son. And the son always... He, the Son did not come into existence. We just read it in Hebrews 1. The Son was always the radiance of the glory of God. It was, he, was, he was a, um, and what is radiance? But it's the glow of the glory of God the Father uh, being transmitted or communicated outwardly. That's what the Son is. He's everything that the Father is. Except, um, except uh, in an outward way. Let's look at it this way. If I had time, I would have made you a, a handout because I've got this cute little diagram here. And I'm just going to describe for you. Like the sun. Like the sun. Let's picture this as a sun. The sun is so bright you can't look at it or it'll, it'll, it'll burn your eye, the retina in your eyes, right? It's too bright. Somebody said, God is like the sun. You can't look directly at it, it will blind you, but you can't see anything else outside of its light. So, in the midst of this big ball of flame, which we'll call the sun, well, which we can represent, this, this, is where, this is God, this is where God dwells. John speaks to us of that God is light, 1 John 1, 5, in him is zero darkness at all. And God is love, and whoever loves knows God. Whoever does not love, you don't know him because God is love. It's his inherent nature. He's not loving. He is love because he is, in, and love is always outward. So the question is asked, geez, what was God doing for eternity before he created everything, the physical creation? What was he doing? Good question. I'm glad you asked. He asked that question in his book. It says, he was eternity past a father who was loving and pouring out in his son. And the son is the word of God spoken from the mind and heart of God going outward to communicate who he is. And that word later on took on flesh. And that's where he's the firstborn of all creation and dwelled among us. He is the radiance of the glory of God, we read in Hebrews chapter 1. That what's the radiance? It's the shine that comes out. And so a better, better picture of who God is in Father and Son, better than the, than the triangle and better than the H2O illustration, solid, liquid, gas, better than that is a, a picture of either a... Uh, there's two other. He gives a picture of a fountain or a picture of a lamp as an example of the relationship between the father and the son. Because a lamp, by its very nature, has, it has, it has uh, because of the fuel that is being burned there, it has the power to radiate light. And light is always a metaphor for truth. And, what, and when that lamp is burning and the, and the lamp is perpetually burning, by the way, the candlestick in the, in, the, in the temple was to be constantly filled. It was to never go out day or night, 24-7, which is representative of God. His light never stops. It is a source, and we know that light and fuel and fire require a fuel to burn. 
God himself has that and is the fuel. He doesn't need to get it from anybody else. He's constantly burning and pouring out light and love, truth and love, constantly. That's what makes him God. That's what makes him unfathomable. And so when you take a lamp you can't, and it's burning, you will always have radiant light shining out, giving light to everything else. And that radiant of the source of that light is the sun. And so the father, wherever the Father is, the Son is always there. Wherever the Son is, you know that the Father is nearby. That's the way that it, what it is and always has been with God. And God has always from eternity past loved the Son. His word that came out of His mouth became that radiance of who He was and spoken and communicated who He was and gave light to all that would see who He was. Now, there's one other thing about this, saint, and well, but the other one was the fountain. A fountain that continually springs out has a nonstop source, too. And it comes out and springs out, and, and that, that fountain is also like Christ, the, the Son, that then gives life to everyone who will drink from it. And Jesus stood up at the feast, and he says, Behold, anyone comes to me and drinks, have his thirst met, and he'll never, never grow thirsty again. That's a fountain. That's, that's, then that comes from the relation. That's, that's a better description of the relationship between the father and son. We, we get that. But you know, here's another interesting part that, uh, that's very interesting too in, uh, as far as we're concerned where we sit. And that is that in the scriptures we read and we learn that although God is light, he's completely light and he's completely love and the sun is the radiance of his glory. And when you have seen him, you have seen the father because you're looking at the radiance of the light. When you've seen the radiance of the light, you're getting a glimpse of what the source of the light looked like. That's what he means by when you've seen me, you've seen the father. But guess what? There's something else we read in the scriptures that's also interesting. And that is this one who is perfect, undisturbed, uh, unadulterated light is also wrapped in darkness. There is a darkness that resides between the, the light, the God who is light, and all the rest of creation. And that darkness is only able to be pierced by the radiance of the light from the source. Interesting. It is. We look in that, and there's a whole number of scriptures in there, and I won't have time to look, to look at them all, but I'll just let, uh, just by, um, um, like Exodus 20, 21, light was wrapped in darkness and pierced by the word and carried by the spirit. You read in Exodus uh, 20, Exodus 14, 19, and 20, Deuteronomy 4, 11, and 12, Psalm 18, 8 to 11, that God is clothed in um, I'm going to go to that one right here, and just so you can see as uh, as an example to that Psalm 18 and verse eight. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He's speaking of God and the presence of God. This is David's psalm. He parted the heavens and he came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Those passages I mentioned to you in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God surrounded and encompassed the, the, the nation of Israel and the armies of Israel with a cloud. And it's interesting because the inside of the cloud was light that gave light to the entire congregation. The outside of that cloud was darkness, so the Egyptians were in utter darkness. There's a darkness there. Then I get to um, 
1 Kings chapter 8, 10 to 12, here's a place in here where the temple was being dedicated to God and, the, and after Solomon prayed and dedicated the house of God to the Lord as a place where he would dwell and meet with his people, it says the glory of God filled the temple and there was a thick cloud of darkness that was there and the ministers and the priests couldn't even minister to God because they couldn't see. God is light, but he wraps himself in a darkness that I and you cannot pierce by our own efforts, but that he has pierced through his word, the Son of God. Wow. So there's a picture of that. Now, the relationship of that. The word is... Um, Uh, a couple other verses here before we get back up to the screen. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And then Exodus 20.21, 20, that light is wrapped in darkness. All right, so um, Matthew 4.16 uh, he quotes, uh, there's a passage there where uh, after the uh, temptation of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9 is quoted, and it says this, People who dwells in a land of darkness has seen a great light. Because here is the one who is the Son of God, standing and walking in their midst, who is from God to bring God to men, to bring the knowledge of Him to men to make God accessible to men, to fallen men. His light pierces the darkness. Now, um, uh, Matthew chapter 3, let's go to the baptism of Jesus. Where are we here? Um, I don't see the reference, but as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my Son whom I love. The first thing that God does to introduce his Son to first the Jewish people and also the world is to say, It's the Son whom I love. Remember we said that Father isn't what God does. Father is who he is. Create, create and rule is what he does. But he, when he does the things that he does, he always does it as the father who he is, not the other way around. He rules as a father. He creates as a father who wants to manifest love through his actions. How important is that for me to know God who he is? Is to know that this is a father who loves his creation, but he's got practice because he's been doing it for eternity, loving his son. This is my son. I love him as, more, as my own life. I want, you all to have, I, want, I want you all to pay attention to him. And he does the same thing when he takes the three guys up into the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. They see three guys, Peter, James, and John, go up there and they see Jesus attended by Moses and Elijah appearing in glory. Here's the glory of God surrounding him. And they see him as more than a man, but as God himself, otherworldly. And the same voice comes. Um, a bright cloud envelopes them and the voice from the cloud. This is my son. Again, first thing, he, the way he introduces his son, I love this boy. He's mine. I love him, and I am well pleased with him. He hadn't done anything yet. I love my son. How, how, how old does your son have to get before he gets good grades in school or he wins the competition at the school? Before you say, I love you, you know, I love you. Does your love depend on them winning the competition or bringing home straight A's? Or, or that, does it? I hope not. Because if that is the case, then you're performance-based and you're, you're not creating sons, you're creating human doings. 
not human beings. Your love for them is just because you look at that child and he hasn't done anything to either earn it or to take it away from you. This is my son and I love him. Better not get in the way. Better not do anything to harm him. Right? Especially if it's a mama bear. <laughs> God is a big mama bear with his kids. He loves because that's what he is. He is the father that loves us, and that's the way he was introduced to us. I'm going to uh, go from there, and I'm going to read you a couple of... I'm going to read you a couple of... Um, things from this book here because the way he puts it is, um, is just excellent and phenomenal. Um, you know, he mentions the fact that when Adolf Hitler used, uh, referred to God, he referred to God as the Almighty. And again, he was, and it's true, God is Almighty. But his picture of God in that was one who ruled and one who had this kind of power and authority, and that's what he emulated. Isn't it just, isn't that interesting? Remember the guy, remember Simon in the book of Acts when they saw the apostles doing, this, doing miracles, healing people, even raising the dead? And the guy came up to him, look, you know what? My magic show would be a whole lot better if I could do what you guys do. How much can I give you? And you'll, you'll pay me, you know? So I got those powers too. And of course, you know what the apostles said, May your money perish with you because where you're going, you're not coming back. He wanted what God, what he could use God for to give to him this kind of power. And he recognized that the power came from God and was almighty, but he wanted it for, not for relational purposes, but he wanted it for self purposes, exactly what Lucifer did. He wanted what God could do, but he didn't, but he wanted God out of the way and out of the picture. And he didn't understand the God of love who was more important to him to have relationship with his sons. Even if you could do nothing, never did a thing, I am content to be in my father's arms and to be called a son. All the rest is gratuitous. The victory is gratuitous, is glory to him. The what you can do and what you do for God. That's why if we go after signs, wonders, and miracles without going after and pursuing the God that gives you that and that wants to dwell in our hearts by faith. I'll tell you what, you know what changed my life and round? It wasn't, you know, seeing somebody's legs grow or even getting healed of this or that. That might wake, wake you up and, hey, there's something, maybe there's something to this. But it doesn't draw me in. What drew me in was a love that was exemplified in a person who did nothing but love me and look me square in the eye and made me feel valued because of the love that was emanating out of them. And that humbled me. That made me weep. I hated myself and I hated my life without Christ until I saw love in person, in the flesh, in people that I'd never seen in my physical family or in my school, in my work or anywhere else and was convinced it didn't exist on this planet. And where the love is, there you'll see and know the presence of God, where God's love is. 1 John 4, 19 and 20. He that loves knows God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. I don't care about all the works, signs, wonders, tongues, this and that that you got, without love, it is fruitless and powerless to, to communicate and to uh, reproduce the life of God in the next person. Unless he is there and the love of Christ is absolutely evident there. Now all those things are, are, are fine and they're wonderful. We're to, we're to embrace the things that God wants and God does through us in terms of powers and science, but that's not what, I don't see anywhere where, where the apostles are praying for those things. They're praying for God to reveal into us and into him who Christ is, the knowledge of him, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ who has a love for us that is beyond comprehension. This is the God of the Bible, the God of the Trinity, 
the God whose love is the Father. So the, that's what um, he makes the point in the negative sense. This is what this is. This is how Hitler viewed God. Uh, <clears throat> now suppose that you um, had a relationship with a uh, with a God who's just a ruler and and a creator, and your identity is that. Um, look at if. Uh, if that is how God is, um, with him, the, you know, the reading from the Michael Reeves, my relationship with him can be little better than my relationship with a, with a, with the traffic cop on the street. No offense to those of you who are police officers. Let me put it like this: If, as ever happened, some fine cop were to catch me speeding and so breaking the rules, I'd be punished. If, and this never happens, he fails to to spot me or I managed to shake him off after a high-speed, exciting car chase, I'd be relieved. But in either case, I wouldn't love him. And, if the, and even if, like God, he chose to let me off the hook for my law-breaking, I still wouldn't love him. I might feel gratitude, and that gratitude might be deep, but that's not at all the same thing as love. And so it is with the divine policeman. The divine policeman. If salvation simply means letting me off the hook and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, then gratitude is in order, not love. In other words, I can never really love the God who is essentially just a ruler. And ironically, that means that, means that I can never keep the greatest and first commandment of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Such is the cold and gloomy place to which the dark goat path takes us. Another way, the other way to think about God is like a lamp lit and evenly paved. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is, in fact, the way. It is a lane that ends happily in a very difficult place with a very difficult sort of God. How? Well, just the fact that Jesus is the Son really says it all. Being a son means he has a father. The God he reveals is first and foremost a father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. The God who, that is the God who has revealed himself to be, not first and foremost as creator and ruler, but Father. Perhaps the way to appreciate this best is to ask what God was doing before creation. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, 24, Father, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world. And that is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he ever was created, before he ever created, excuse me, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. Okay. Um, since God is before all things a father and not primarily a creator ruler, all of his ways are beautifully fatherly. It, isn't, it is not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It isn't that he, he's just a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. And he means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Um, and uh, let me go on. It was a profound observation, and for it is only... It is only when we see that God rules his creation as a kind and loving father that we will be moved to delight in his providence. We might acknowledge that the rule of some heavenly policeman was just, but we could never take delight in his regime as we can delight in the tender care of a father. So what does it mean that God is a father? Well, first of all, it does actually mean something. Not all names do. My dog is named Max. But that doesn't really tell you anything about him. The name doesn't tell you what he is or what he's like. But, if I can make the jump, the father is called father because he is a father. And a father is a person who gives life and begets children. Now that insight is like a, kick in, a stick of dynamite in all of our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is, in, is an inherently 
outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity past, he's always been life-giving. This gets unpacked for us in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows experientially and intimately God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. There's the litmus test because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Have you ever known someone so magnetically kind and gracious, so warm and generous of spirit that just a little time spent with them affects how you think and feel and behave? I didn't need an exhortation. I just needed to sit in this guy's presence for 10 minutes. I'm a changed person. Why? Because the presence of God is there with that person. So why? Because he has a relationship with God that I want. It was being around fatherly men as a young Christian in Bible college that motivated me. I want to be that man one day. Not just his knowledge of the scripture. I'd like to have that too. But I want to be that man because when I'm in that man's presence, I feel I'm with the Lord. I feel he's been with the Lord. I know he's not the Lord. But I see somebody that's a lot farther along like him than I am. And that's the kind of man I want to be with my sons and with my grandkids. Where they've been with you in your presence and they know that they've been in his presence. Even if only for a little while when you're with them. I know people like that and they seem to be little pictures of how God is according to John. This God, he says, is love with such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming loving. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. I'm going to have to concise this, so just give me, give me a... Um, a moment to kind of pull this together because I don't want to um, miss a couple of points here before we are we're completely out of time. Um, here's an interesting. We read from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, about the sun being the radiance of God's glory. All that the, God, the glory of God was was seen in Jesus and he is the exact representation of the... You know what? In about 350 A.D., now this, think of this, this is just 300 years after Jesus was on the earth and the apostles and the book of Acts and everything. One of the fathers of the faith was Gregory of Nicaea. And he wrote this. I think it's pretty cool. We still have writings that we can get from the first centuries. And this is what his commentary was, this, this, uh, this guy from the fourth century on Hebrews chapter 1, which we just read. Here's what he had to say. As the light from a lamp is the nature, is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is, and is united with it, for as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place, the apostle would have us consider both the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, and it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness radiating from it. It's impossible for the Father to exist without the Son because the Father is love and love emanates outwardly, and it's impossible for the Son to exist without the Father. You have to have had a plurality in the Godhead, which we call the Trinity. And by the way, the Spirit, there's another chapter just about the Spirit's role in this. And the Spirit takes the words of the Son, who is the Word, and brings it life-givingly to, to the next generation of sons. The Father is never without the Son like a lamp, and it is by very nature the Father to shine out His Son. Um, Jesus wanted us to know, he, when He prayed for His disciples, 
He wanted his disciples to know that the Father loves the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. John 3:35. I want you to know that the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. John 5:20. Jesus also said, "The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father commanded me." Here's a relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Father, Jesus wants, to know, wants his disciples to know that the Father loves him. That's the way the Father introduced him at his baptism and at the transfiguration. And then Jesus underscores that to his disciples. And then he says, I want you to know that I love the Father and that I only do exactly what he says and I do only what he says. John 14, 31, what the Father has commanded me. So the relationship between Father and Son is not just legal and it's not just righteous. It is a love bond between the two. And it's because of that, that explains creation. It not only explains the Trinity, it explains what God is doing in the present tense on this earth. How cool is that? And he goes on to say, um, the Father, while the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, there's very definite shape to their relationship. Overall, the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, the Bible is awash with the talk of the Father's love to the Son. And while the Son clearly does love the Father, hardly, hardly anything is said about that, except for that one verse in John 14, 31. And that means that in his love, he will send and direct the Son, whereas the Son never sends or directs the Father. This, that turns out to be a hugely significant as the Apostle Paul serves in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now listen to these words, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of every woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. In other words, the shape of the father-son relationship, headship, begins a gracious cascade like a waterfall of love. As the father is the lover and the head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church. And as the father has loved me, so I have loved you, Jesus says in John 15, 9. And that... Uh, is the, uh, the gospel. All right. Okay. The, uh, let me just, um, we'll wrap it up with this one. I'm going to leave you with uh, this passage in Romans. The, it is that the Father has always enjoyed loving another, and so the act of creation by which he creates others to love seems utterly appropriate for him. Thus, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the logos, the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over the Father so delighted in his Son that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn among many sons. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, 29, for those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And God has given us that spirit, not of fear, but of sonship in our hearts, the way that he is with us. Um, that's an awesome, that's an awesome God. We have a God who calls us to go out and not be doings in the ministry, but to be beings who are filled with him who wants to fill us and flow out of us as the life of Christ is manifest in you and me. That's his work, not mine. It's his work in your life. If you have not, you know, you might have been raised in a, um, just speaking to, to folks generally, a lot of people are raised in religions that have a lot of things that are taught about God, and many of it is, is right, some of it is not right. 
But the question is, and I give you this today, do you know him? To know him in a real personal way. God created you for the purpose to have a relationship with you, to know that you will know him. It's all that he wants from you, to know you. He wants to know you. Do you know him? And to know him and see him as he is, is to love him. Do you love him? Does everything that motivates you and, and that flows out of you an expression of love for the God who is your father? You know him as your father. If not, it's a simple matter of saying yes to the person of Jesus Christ, the son. He just wants you to say yes to him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you claim to be, God in human flesh. I believe that you died on the cross, not just as a good example, but as a payment for my sins to restore me, to redeem me, to bring me into relationship with you. And I receive that. Not only believe it intellectually as a historical event, but I receive that. Come into my life and I commit my life and myself to you right now in the name of Jesus. You make that prayer. He will not, he has never failed to answer that prayer with the reality of you coming to know him. Don't leave this day without doing that. And if you want to, if you've done that, um, come on up and ask and tell somebody and talk to somebody, myself, Pastor Chris, one of the elders, and we'll, we want to pray with you and give something to you that'll help you in your walk with Christ. Uh, let's pray. And um, brother, with the, um, you're going to play, uh, do a song, but we'll pray and um, then we can close with a, a little worship together. Father, we thank you for, Lord, the, the privilege and the grace of, that you've graced us with to be in your house, to be where you are. We thank you, Father, that it is because of Christ and who you are that we have this life the life that we have in Christ, that you have given it to us, and that we, have, we are your sons by faith in Christ. We've come into this relationship with you, and I pray for your people today that you'd increase our faith, our knowledge of you, our walk with you, our intimacy with you, and the love that we have for you as we see you more and as the one who loves us beyond everything. And that there's nothing that is in this world, this life, or outside of this life, things visible or invisible, even death, life, things past or present, that can keep us from the love of God, of Father God, that is manifest in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, enwrap us and define us by that love, that our going out would be, wherever we go and do and say, would be born out of that love that you've had for us, that now we just want to give back to you, I pray, Father, for all of this, for our homes, our marriages, and our children, and our grandchildren today. In the mighty and glorious name of Jesus, amen and amen.